I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. As I'm sure you know by now, we've developed a really strong relationship with our partners at Inside Tracker. Now, we're excited for the path ahead, but especially as we welcome a new Purple Patch coach onto the team specializing in women's health and female performance. Now, more of that in today's show. We are going to partner to help you perform better, whether you're chasing podiums and finish lines or simply kids around the house. We want you to thrive in sport and life. And from the days of the Purple Patch Pro Squad, we believe that world-class performance is built on a platform of health, and InsideTracker helps this. They do it by assessing your biometrics and then combining their findings with the advice and recommendations from the team of scientists and experts and so Tracker. And that's going to help you refine your approach to performance to ensure that you get optimal results. The good news that all of your data and improvements are trackable on InsideTracker's personal dashboard of health. Now, you don't need to be a Purple Patch athlete to leverage this. All you need to do is head to InsideTracker.com slash Purple Patch, InsideTracker.com slash Purple Patch, and use this sneaky code, Purple Patch Pro 20. That's Purple Patch Pro 20. That gives you 20% off everything at the store. All right, let's talk about performance today and a little bit of enhancement of that performance. We are going to invite Andy Blow from Precision Hydration. It's all about race day fueling and hydration. It's a cracker. I hope you enjoy the show. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And ladies and gentlemen, there is a first time for everything. And today we are going to do something for the very first time. It is a rerun, not through laziness or having nothing else to say, but instead it's because we love this discussion so much that we thought, you know what, we're going to run it again. It received such a great response. So many people enjoyed the episode. We thought we would bubble it right up to the top of your inboxes. And besides that, look, It's really timely. We are in the thick of race season and we are getting so many requests to tackle the topic. And so we thought we'd go back and revisit an episode we did. Once again, we get to welcome Andy Blow, the founder and CEO of Precision Fuel and Hydration. And the topic today, it's very simple. It is your guide to race day fueling and hydration. Now, Andy's biggest piece of advice you're going to hear today, don't look over the fence. What he means there is there are always good reasons that you shouldn't follow the herd when it comes to your own fueling and hydration strategy. We are here to explain why today, and you're going to receive expert guidance and recommendations around your meal planning leading to a race, some fueling and suggested approaches during each of your disciplines in a triathlon, which of course are easily applicable to any endurance activity, and of course, ensuring that you understand your nutrition and hydration ranges and what different conditions could do, things like heat and humidity, to impact those numbers. All of that is in the meat and potatoes. But before we dive in with Andy, we have got one little special word of the week to do. Barry, over to you and the ukulele. We like the way he thinks, serious with the way. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dixonary Word of the Week. 
Yes, folks, it's Word of the Week this week, and it's Girl Power, and we are excited to welcome a brand new senior coach to the Purple Patch team. In fact, we get to welcome back Nancy Clark. That is really exciting. Full circle stuff going on here. Nancy was a Purple Patch coach for several years, decided to head off, start her own coaching business, something that we were wholly supportive of, really excited, very proud of, in fact. And while away, Nancy decided to double down on her passion for the female athlete, relatively expanding her deep educational platform and specialty coaching around female athletes, particularly around periods, pregnancy, postpartum, performance across both athletics and, of course, life through perimenopause and menopause. And now we get to welcome Nancy back and we get a great coach back into the Purple Patch team, but also one with super expertise. And this is something that the whole of the Purple Patch team are so excited to team up once again. I believe that there is a huge hole in understanding, support and coaching to help women thrive, not just in triathlons, but in global performance. And in fact, in all honesty, we felt like this was a hole that was a little bit a part of Purple Patch as well. And we were really on a pursuit to try and fill that, to bring in an expert just like this. Well, we have well and truly brought in the best fit that I can imagine. In fact, Nancy has been working with the team and myself for the last month or so, and now we feel ready to announce. So I want to take this opportunity to welcome Nancy. And I also wanted to highlight for you, the listener, what this might be. Well, we realize that Nancy is going to be a great resource. In fact, we're going to invite Nancy onto this show, and we hope that she can be an ongoing resource for educational content across all of the aspects relating to female athletics and performance. I should note that she's also going to be available for Purple Patch Coached Athletes on an ongoing basis, things like office hours, written education, etc., all of which will be complementary as a part of being a Purple Patch Coach member. And she's available for consultations as well. If you want to have a single time a la carte session with Nancy, that is terrific. Now, Nancy is going to take on a limited roster of one-to-one athletes and clients. And this is all going to be anchored around driving towards performance and health. Of course, in pursuit of reaching your athletic goals, but also to try and magnify your energy, working in body composition, etc. If you would like to be considered and then we are just starting to accept applications to work with Nancy. All you need to do is email us at info at purplepatchfitness.com, and we'll be delighted to reach out to you and see whether it's a good match and a good fit. I don't think I need to tell you that spots are going to be limited for this, and they're going to be pretty hot commodities, because while we want to support everybody, of course, we also want to ensure that this premium coaching is protected for the pursuit of quality. And we want to ensure that Nancy, of course, isn't overwhelmed. And so this week, girl power, rock and roll, a little bit of inspiration. And most importantly, welcome back to the team, Nancy. We're excited. And with that, let's talk about fueling and hydration. I am proud to welcome my mate and the world expert in hydration. Yes, indeed, it is the founder and CEO of Precision Fueling and Hydration, Andy Blow. Folks, it is the meat and potatoes. Yes, folks, it is the meat and potatoes, and today we are joined by the man that the man of the Peter Minute labelled a freaking genius. 
I just call him Andy. Andy Blow, welcome. Hello, Matt. Good to be back. <laughs> Good to be back. We are our focus today as we do start to launch into, particularly in North America, I know the European races are a little bit behind, but racing season is coming after a long, long layoff. And I think that all of the coaches, all of the athletes, everyone associated with the sport are, are incredibly excited to get back to the normal world and real racing. And so we thought we would bring you back on the show uh, and knowing that we've uh, we've had you on before, but our focus is going to be relatively narrow into the broad subject of fueling and hydration for racing. And so uh, if you're ready to go on this, uh, fasten your seatbelt and we'll rock and roll. Absolutely, mate. Always ready. All right, good. So I want to start generally with you and have a, uh, a broader lens, just a little bit of a, almost a refresher course for people that maybe haven't listened to our ep other episodes and discussions that we had. And, um, and then later in the show, I've got some, some very specific questions around environment and fueling and logistics and some other components all related to racing. But I also, before knowing that we're going to have this discussion, I actually went to the Purple Patch athletes and I asked them, what questions do you have for Andy Blow? And of course, they inundated me with questions. So I'd filtered through and I have chosen some of the best. And so we're going to go through their questions as well. So I think you're going to be on a little bit of the hot seat. But to get us going, can you first, as a little bit of a fresher, always something that, um, that I think is important, you break down how you at Precision and you individually as the leader of Precision, break down the different areas of proper fueling and hydration in racing. How should athletes think about things? Yeah, good question, Matt. We've, we've Something that we've been refining for a number of years now, and I remember actually sitting down with you and the Purple Patch um, coaching crew, what must have been 18 months or so ago now, and having a pretty in-depth discussion about it all, because... The, the world of hydration and nutrition is a bit is a little bit confusing to, to a lot of athletes. It's a bit of a black box. And all the time in our approach, we're always trying to like reduce the complexity of the messaging down to what really matters. And when you when we look at it on a fundamental level, when you're training and competing in endurance events, racing hard, you need three three things. You need to you need to drink fluids, which is usually water-based. You, you potentially need electrolytes with those fluids, depending on the amount of, of sweating that you're doing and the amount of salt or sodium you're losing. And you need calories, mainly in the form of simple or simply digestible carbohydrates to fuel the activity. So we call it the three levers, fluids, electrolytes, carbs. And then knowing the ballpark figures for your three numbers in that, that area, how much fluid you'll need per hour, how much sodium you'll need per hour, and how much carbohydrate you need per hour are the, the building blocks. They're the kind of the backbone of a successful fueling strategy for endurance. I think that's that's interesting because that's that's different in many ways that I've heard before where it's like, oh, what what is it compromised of? So, you know, where are you sourcing electrolytes or what type of carbohydrate are you are you using? Are you using fructose base or maltodextrin or whatever? But you, you said the three, I let's say three levers uh, or levers, if I'm allowed to be a bit more English, <laughs> of your, your hydration or your fluids, your electrolytes and your calories. And then the next thing you went to there, I just want to sort of ask for a little bit more that you said, it's important that the athlete knows their numbers as the first building block. Can you, can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, I think that's because, so 
in one sense it harks back to a purely personal range of experiences like it like a lot of the hydration stuff that i talk about does in that when i was when i moved up from racing short course to ironman the the big challenge the big unknown was um was the sort of nutritional hydration demands and when i look back the way in which i went about figuring out what i might need to take was pretty was pretty heath robinson really it was not it was not organized or scientific despite the fact that at the time i was working as a sports scientist and all the rest of it my my approach my own athletic pursuit was a little bit more haphazard and i think part of that was because i started looking at you know what i needed to know in that space and very quickly got overwhelmed and confused by different messages was it this product that i should be having or this like you said this source this type of carbohydrate back then there was a lot of talk about um about you know um energy gels versus bars and this kind of thing like they were fundamentally different and now they do look a lot different but what i failed to realize at the time was when you break them down as you do in the body they are just carbs and mm-hmm. drinks are just liquids or, or water plus potentially electrolytes plus potentially carbs so there's this kind of element of of wanting to to get down to the basics because even today we go through these constant hype cycles in everything to do with sport and and life in general but in sport we go through hype cycles of equipment and training methodologies and the next best thing is always sort of being sold to us and it's not necessarily done maliciously but to give you the the best example i can in the sports nutrition market it's probably that the, the message of saying well you need to know how many grams of carbohydrate you need per hour is makes it really hard to differentiate between people because if people are just saying little packets of carbohydrate you know they're kind of if you give the message oh well you just need to know how many grams you need per hour it's difficult to then sell your product over someone else's product because it's all just little bags of carbohydrate so what we do is we we go and like focus on the 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 marginal gains if you like the minutiae of it's a you know it's a hydrogel or it's a super starch or it's a you know a glucose fructose blend or something all of which like have merit of some sort or often they have a, they have some kind of even if it's not proven science this kind of bio plausibility that it helps in some small way but that's that's the cart before the horse you know the, the main thing is getting enough of it down your neck because we all know we've been you've been there running ultras and things like that you get to a point where your body just needs food calories nutrients resource and it doesn't really care it becomes like really less fussy six hours in you know and you you'll take what's there on the table be it jelly babies or boiled potatoes or whatever it is get it in the body and and so that whole if i'm explaining it it well enough that whole sort of concept just came through stripping back to the basics and saying these things that the sports nutrition marketing industry talks about are not irrelevant they're not unimportant and they're not all fabricated some of them maybe are but a lot of them are based on niche little bits of science but they kind of gloss over the the key focus know your numbers how much carb how much fluid how much salt per hour then worry about those details afterwards it's exactly the same as my central part of why what my world training methodology and my analogy would be the draw of athletes and coaches to the data the data the data and um 
and forgetting the most important thing is to execute with intent, is to create a training program that can be applied consistently, that you can show up and work hard when it counts and make sure you go easy so that you can show up when it work and counts. Some really basic fundamentals. And when you get that right, and then you can start to really hyper-analyze and bring in. But of course, people are so eager to bring in analytics of sleep tracking or anything else. It's like nail and become a master of the basics first. Know that and be empowered by that and then build off of that. And then maybe you can look at the super duper gels or the wazzle bazzle gels or whatever it might be. So um, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, are there any really critical quick snapshot considerations in each of these areas that each athlete should think about in racing? Yeah, I would say from a nutrition or calorific carbohydrate intake point of view, it's potentially easier to figure out and it's more standard as to what works between people. There's less into, there is into individual variation, but it's constrained. So, you know, there's some good literature out there. There's some good practical experience out there about the fact that, you know, for shorter events, say like one to two hours, you're probably going to be okay with circa 30 grams of carbohydrate an hour when you get up to two three four hours it might be more like 60 grams and when you go in really long it might be 90 or arguably 90 plus grams per hour but they're and they're kind of decent markers in the sand which to then go and perform your own experimentation around you know there's there's outliers the devi the standard deviation from the mean there exists but it's not ridiculous Mm-hmm. With with hydration and electrolytes, the playing field is much broader and it's m- much more influenced by environment, genetics, um, uh, you know, your physiology, those kind of things. So, you know, the, the least sweaty person can drink a lot less and take a, a lot less electrolytes than the sweatiest person, especially when, when you get to long, hot events. So that requires a bit more nuance. It requires things like, you know, potentially at the sharper end, the kind of, the, the looking under the small rocks, like doing the sweat tests that we offer and doing the kind of the, the homework on that stuff. So I think being aware that those three numbers are are all individual, but but the hydration numbers are probably a little bit more individual than the, the nutrition ones, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and through our own experience, through my own experience, having uh, several of my coaches a year or so ago um, tested through the sweat testing and our, our, uh, deviation between each other was huge on the, yeah. you know, on the day. I, I remember coach Mike, who has been a guest of this show around the strength was an incredibly salty sweater up, uh, towards 2000 milligrams an hour. I think one of the That's higher right, yeah. guys you tested and, and I was down at 650 or 700, uh, somewhere in the medium range sort of thing, nothing that was uh, particularly high. So, uh, so pretty interesting. So, so, so some I wanted... people would call it, some people would just call it tight fisted, Matt, with your salt, you know. Well, that's, I am a little tight fisted. <laughs> it, it extends to other areas of life. I can promise you that. So, <laughs> so, so I want to go through a quick checklist because people are saying, okay, I get the concepts, but I've got a race in two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks. And so I want to do a, a quick fire round for people. And then we're going to get into some logistical questions because. A lot of people say, how do I approach X, Y, et cetera, et cetera. So let's go quick and dirty. I want to, this is more like mastermind. Most of you guys listening will not know what I'm talking about with that. Andy will. It's a very famous British TV show in which they get very quick hit answers to. 
So, um, un under a minute answer per per question here, okay? We're going to dive in. Number one, meal planning in the final 48 hours before a race. Final 48 hours, right. I would say tried and tested is good. Mm -hmm. Stuff that you've done before. Relatively, relatively low fiber because you don't want extra fiber in your system. You're going to be nervous enough and visiting the, the porta potties enough without that. And it will weigh you down. Um, higher, higher carbohydrate, but don't go crazy. It's always a danger, as you well know, saying to athletes, take more of this. It's just like an extra portion or so of carbs than you'd normally have, I would say. And and I would say for me, it's always been like simple and bland. The one time I didn't do that was when I had a, a hot Thai green curry on the beach before the, the night before the Phuket International Triathlon and lived to regret that decision the next day. Good say. Okay, simple and bland, like your musical taste. Perfect. So <laughs> what to do the night before a race? I guess extension of that same thing, basically, yeah? Largely, yeah. And I would say if it's hot as well, um, a little bit of extra salt on your food, possibly a, a strong electrolyte drink as well, replacing some water to make sure you're adequately hydrated without being drowned in, in water alone. Yep. That's uh, uh, I, I, I've done, actually do that before training. That's a good thing to practice in training before a big Saturday ride or something as well as yeah, having a, definitely. a, a brew hydration. Okay, we're on to race morning, breakfast and hydration. Race morning. Um, if you're if you're good with breakfast, I was always good with breakfast as an athlete. I didn't even on a nervous stomach. I was okay with solids, so I would be you know the kind of traditional recommendations: oatmeal, porridge, bagel, you know, kind of simple not too fibrousy carb stuff, lots of honey I used to like on my cereal, a bit of coffee. If you're a coffee drinker, get the caffeine in. A very strong electrolyte drink, again, get your blood volume up. Don't just keep sipping on water needlessly. Um, and, and yeah, it, it sounds boring, but the, it is the tried and tested mantra. If you've got a nervous stomach, then, you know, kind of liquid calories potentially. And could, because especially for long races, even though it can be hard for some athletes to get calories in, we know that in general, there's a very strong correlation between, you know, finishing well in the later stage of an event and the amount of calories you get in during the breakfast. So, so try and focus on that. Perfect. What, what about uh, right before the swim, pre-swim, do you encourage athletes to take any calories then, any hydration then? definitely for those who are more nervous eaters who haven't got as much breakfast in for sure i think 15 minutes out is a great time to slam a gel or a, a small energy bar or something which is because the, the theory there which is not massively well borne out by research as far as i can tell but is quite anecdotally supported is that it takes 15 20 minutes for that sugar to be digested and hit your bloodstream by which time you've started your adrenaline's up your glucose is being robbed from your blood anyway to sort of power muscular contraction etc so it, it sort of spares a bit of that i've always done it and found that it's not been detrimental i can't comment you know categorically say it's been really positive but i know a lot of athletes do it if on the other hand you feel a bit sicky doing it or you think it'll upset you or or you haven't tried it before a hard training session i wouldn't try it for the first time on race day so it's it's not something to worry about if you've if you don't feel like it's for you, but there's not a huge downside um, and there may be an upside if you can do it. If you can do it, exactly. I, th I think there's a theme running here, which is 
get the uh, the borders and the framework, but also work out what's individually works for you and don't look over the fence and think that the grass is greener on your competitor side. I think that's a really important point to, to hammer home as well, Matt, because the one thing you don't want, like anything around food, you don't want people to get like food anxiety or nutrition anxiety about the fact that the, the research or the recommendation says I should do X, Y, and Z, but for whatever reason, it doesn't agree with you. There's always good reasons why you shouldn't follow the herd. You know, and and so they need to be measured decisions, and it's worth experimenting with some of these things. But if they end up not really working for you, like if you're not a big breakfast eater, and what I've just said about you know the amount of calories you have for breakfast affects how you finish later on. Well, I'm sure we can all pull examples of people who don't eat breakfast properly before an Ironman and go on and smash it. So it's not hard and fast. It's just that we're sort of trying to point out the trends. Perfect. Well, well, this is very much a trend, the next one. And and I'll preface this by saying it was always never for me, but any calories or should you do anything post-swim? So into that T1. Um, almost certainly no. The only thing I would have routinely done is have a bottle of a little bottle of water at or near the bike if it's a sea swim, if it's a long sea swim, because sometimes you do just want to like rinse out, throw it over your eyes and your head as well and your mouth and just rinse out and not waste a bottle that you could be carrying on your bike. But mm-hmm. other than that, it's a, it's a, yeah, you, your body is like under so much stress going from horizontal to vertical navigating the bikes a nervous time of any race that is usually and you don't want to be cluttering it up with trying to eat yeah highest heart rate of the race sometimes can be t1 where you're going up through there Um, and then i would add on the sea swim just a little couple of sips of water because of any salt water that you've ingested there trying to make sure that you're not you're you're diluting that if you are in the sea yeah um Okay, quick quick, quick rules. We're going to dive into this more. Yeah. It's a huge subject, so I can't do this. The bike. It's almost yeah. an unfair question for you. If we're talking, so if we break it down real simple and we're saying like Olympic distance or short distance stuff and below, that's relatively simple because for me, that's about not a lot of fluid is needed, but shouldn't be, you shouldn't neglect fluid if you feel thirsty. It's good to have a bottle of something on the bike, be that a calorific drink if you want to get your energy from it or whether it's an electrolyte drink if you want it. But drinking is much more about drinking to thirst unless you're like furiously in the the, the biggest sweater in Miami in the summer. You know, it's not mm-hmm. going to be a big problem for your dehydration. Um, so drink drink if you feel like you need it and what based on what your experience says. Um, I would always recommend, I didn't used to do this until late, I got later into my racing and I definitely used to race whole Olympic distance races nil by mouth which I look back on and think was probably folly you can just about do it but I think banging a gel or two on the bike for most people is not a bad idea because that extra carbohydrate has been proven to enhance performance for most people of that duration so 30 60 grams of carbs on the bike great shout especially with 10 minutes to go before you get into into um, T2 for half and full Ironman of course it all changes because this the, the bike becomes the time when you're going to try and set up a good run and part of setting up a good run is mitigating fluid and electrolyte losses and preserving blood volume and also getting enough calories in because you know you can always eat more on the bike than you can on the run partly because it's cooler and and you're working not necessarily working less hard but you're working in a posture and stuff which makes it easier to ingest and absorb and you've got access to bottles and top tube bars for for, uh, top tube bags for whatever food you need and that sort of thing 
So that's where the plan is. You're eating as much for the run as for the bike. So you're probably going to, inverted commas, overeat on the bike because mm-hmm. when you get off the bike, you don't want to be running on empty. Um, you've got a long way to go still. So trying to mitigate those losses, minimize them. And, you know, I would say for most athletes, if, if, if we're talking numbers there, carbohydrates, 60 plus grams per hour in a half Ironman on the bike, possibly bigger people pushing big watts and all the rest of it, if they can, going up to 90 or beyond. Um, fluids all over the map. Some yep. in a really cold race with a low sweat rate, you might drink 500, 600 mils. You might drink, you know, three, four liters in a in a hot, humid race. So that's purely on sweat rate and requirement. And the same with electrolytes. Some people are going to nibble by with a couple of hundred milligrams of sodium an hour on the bike. Some people are going to need, I was a 1500 milligram an hour guy, you know, in hot conditions. So that's the kind of the bandwidth there. And an Ironman is like a a bigger version of all of that really you know you don't not that the numbers get appreciably bigger but obviously it's double the distance so over the accumulated time you're going to take going to take more in mm-hmm. um, but we definitely have a we definitely have an ongoing conversation with a lot of athletes about the fact that that you can't expect to get off the bike in a in a long course triathlon and do a and be playing catch up on your fueling and hydrating on the run it's probably a bit downhill from there it's a great point. It's and and I think that that's. I'm just going to shine the spotlight on that. What you said at the start of that piece, which is much of, or regurgitate said it my way, much of what you're doing on the bike isn't just to fuel the bike, but it's to set up the run. And I think yeah. that's a shift of perspective for many people. They, uh, because uh, it, it really is. It, it it's in many times the difference between a run to your trained potential and a run that's a little bit of a disaster. And yeah. uh, that's important. How about T two? T two. I would. I'd on a long in a couple of half Ironman races that I did later in my career when I was becoming more picky about you know trying to get my nutrition and hydration right. I would pick up like a fuel belt type thing and carry some some of my own either gels or salt tablets or liquids or a bit of everything to make sure that I was going. But I'm trying to move through T two fairly swiftly because obviously any time sat still is time wasted really um so i wouldn't necessarily it's, it's an opportunity to pick up any stuff that you particularly like that you can't get on the course because to to a certain extent not many of the pros would do it in a half ironman or whatever i would imagine but if you have a particular gel preference say and the ones they're giving out on course you're really not keen on the the harm of carrying you know three or four gels the weight penalty of that is very low but the benefit psychologically and having something you've trained on is really quite high. So it's kind of, kind of optional, but I was always a big one for, you know, if you're racing, you're going to keep, you're going to keep moving through, through transition. So you're not loafing for too long. Mm-hmm. That's good. And, and I'm, I'm going to save the run actually, because you, you talked about something there. So I want to start to narrow the focus now. And I think that the run philosophy is going to come out in the, in the, the rest of our conversation, I, I want to actually narrow the focus to, to logistics a little bit. And you mentioned something there, so I'm just going to follow that rabbit hole. Carrying tips. We had a lot of questions from our athletes around this with, and a lot of them, of course, naturally look at the pros and they see these very, very slick bikes with one or two bottles on potentially hydration in the frame or elsewhere. 
how do you recommend folks carry all their hydration on the bike? Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting one because it, it's bikes have changed a lot in the last 10 years, probably more than they had previous to that before it was always like two or possibly three bottle cages. And that was that yeah. I do. I am quite a fan of the, the, I even used to use a really old school one, the profile between the handlebars kind of, water bottle up front because they were so good for staying in the aero position it gave you extra capacity i i think if you're someone who doesn't have a specially high requirement for lots of electrolytes or you're not particularly picky about what type of drink that you use then i would have a minimal strategy for how much fluid you carry on on the bike with the view to being being um, focused on picking up what you need water or whatever drink it is from the aid stations because extra fluid carried is relatively heavy it doesn't matter so much on a flat course but on a hilly course you, you pay the cost of it if you are though someone who has a particularly high sodium requirement or has a particular drink you want to use there is no harm in like having a you know obviously in a bottle up front one on the frame one behind the seat if that's a kind of regular setup and then you can start with a really heavy heavy tanks of the the good stuff that you want and then you're going to get relatively deep into the race then before you've got to start meddling with aid stations and rolling the dice of catching the bottle that you want the the other i suppose the other thing to say is that that often leads into this question is like what about super concentrated bottles of stuff that can last you all the way around so that you can top them up with water or chase them down with water and stuff i used to be vehemently against that approach because i saw all of the downsides and probably wasn't very open to the upsides of it the upside being that you can make a really concentrated bottle of of something which then you all you have to pick up is water so it makes your your mission very simple the downside is if you lose that bottle it's a disaster or a potential disaster and also if you drink it and then you're not very good at, at titrating it with the right amount of water as you go around you can make yourself pretty sick so having worked with a number of pro athletes who are super diligent about this and this is their preferred approach it kind of changed my mindset to say well why don't i work with these people to do it the way they want to do it as opposed to just keep telling them to do it my way and so i've kind of met in the middle with some some people but one the 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 one cast iron rule i would have is you never ever do that for the first time on race day which is ironically how most people do it you need to train routinely with that strategy and you need to rehearse how much you're using. You need to get your numbers straight because what you're doing there is you're doing a bit of home chemistry on or biochemistry on the go. And so that's, that's for experts and people who've had practice. That's not for novices. (laughs) And also people that know how to ride their bikes can have for extended time, one handed supple, if they're you know without any problem um and 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 i guess in a really practical world the most simple and probably effective way would be to be consuming your fluids through the bottle or the torpedo type thing up the front between the aero bars and then on the frame carrying the concentrates you can dump it in grab a water bottle dilute it but obviously you better be good at practicing that and getting it yeah so it's habitual yeah, exactly. And as you've said, that requires a bit of skill. It requires a relatively non-technical course or non-technical sections, crosswinds, all that sort of stuff. Because what the last thing you want to be doing is is like having your nutrition, hydration sort of strategy um, knocked knocked into the weeds because you can't take your hands off the handlebars. You know, that's yeah. 
you, you, what you've gained in sort of consolidating, you've lost in, in, in your physiological output. That there's no better example of that than making the turn at Harvey and the Hawaii Ironman and coming down a 19-mile a descent that has plenty of uphill, but uh, a sort of 19-mile descent with, if it's a windy day, you see people that can go an hour without taking their hands off their handlebars because yeah. they're terrified. Um, what, what about on the run athletes? This is actually a question that came from one of our athletes. I, I want to use precision hydration on the run. How do I carry it? How should I go about that? I think mostly the option that, that we favour there is using the sort of capsules, like we call them sweat salt capsules. They have mm. 250 milligrams of sodium. And this is that's where they're light. They come, the, the ones we do at the moment come in a blister pack. So you can just take a strip. And I'm a big fan on the run of those shorts with the sort of mesh pockets on the outside of the leg. I think that's a really fantastically efficient way to carry stuff because it's mm -hmm. easily accessible but doesn't bounce around and doesn't annoy you when you're running and you can just slip some of those into your pocket and then you you're obviously picking up water or whatever um, drink you're having from the aid stations and washing capsules down and that's where it's kind of just a matter of knowing your numbers because it's if you're a 500 milligrams an hour person it's two capsules an hour and as long as you chase each one of those down with a bit of liquid I would say that, and it's that's that goes for long course triathlon, but also for ultra running and and marathon running and stuff as well. Because when you get to the run, carrying fluids is it's more of a penalty. Unless the bike course is exceptionally hilly, it's you know, every kilo that you or half kilo you carry extra on the run does carry a bit of a penalty with it. So you're better mm -hmm. off carrying some tablets and, and washing them down rather than I would say leaving T two with two massive water bottles. Okay, super. Um, here was uh, here was a question actually from Sarah around this one of our athletes. Sarah, thank you for this. So I'm just going to read her question. I wanted to give this. How do I carry everything during a run when you use your own nutrition and hydration? I'm trying for a Boston qualifier, which is 345 for her. I need to be quick and light. There's no time for stopping. Uh, so... <laughs> I, I think there's a philosophical approach to that as well of um, of uh, the, the sort of ultimate solution. But uh, give me your lens on that. I think I think if you, I would be one of those kind of people who would probably want to carry. If I was doing a marathon, I reckon I would want to carry the bits that I think I would need on the way around as well, because I can see lots of problems with trying to get access to the right stuff on the course. So I kind of I understand Sarah's sentiment with that and for me that would be probably choosing for running I tend to at, at speed which you are kind of in that category with marathon running I would prefer to use gels for or gel like format for carbs because they're just easy to suck down no chewing mm -hmm. involved and they're easy and so you would you would get one of those little belts or something there you can clip a few gels on because that that level of weight penalty is small if you think the average gel probably let's say it weighs about what's it going to be sort of 50 ish grams in total and you might need two per hour so if you're mm -hmm. a three hour marathon runner three hour something you're going to need half a dozen of those maximum it's not a huge weight penalty to carry that obviously dissipates as you go around because you're using them just a simple little belt for them to go on is good 
I, I would where I would draw the line though is carrying liquids around with me, carrying drinks because that's just cumbersome and it's heavy and it's you can get water on the way around the course and as far as I'm aware, like the H2O served in Boston is of comparable nature to the H2O in London and you know Amsterdam and wherever else you're, you're marathoning. So you can kind of make do with that. Plus, if you need electrolytes, you take some little capsules. So our, our recommendation has always been, you know, if you really, if you want to carry your calories, because you're not an elite runner who can get past their own bottles, then, then do that. But water and water you can pick up, salt you can carry as well yeah water is water is almost universal the the uh the only quick story someone listening will share my pain on this the las vegas marathon many years ago where they fed us water from the fire hydrants and everybody was throwing up their way around this course it was uh, <laughs> it was not a very pleasant marathon experience uh so so here's I'm going to shift gears now so a little bit of logistics there let's go to some fueling specifics this is a biggie this is important stuff. And I want to address some of the research lately. There's been a lot of research coming out around, quite frankly, what, what I saw as massive absorption rates for endurance athletes. Some studies with 100 grams an hour in cycling at relatively high intensity, up to 120 grams per hour for some ultra athletes. So I'd, I'd firstly love to hear your thoughts on the research and any insights that you have for us there. And then how should our folks, our racers, think about this in terms of carbs per hour? You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, I was going to talk about it in an Ironman, a faster athlete, 10 hours less, and, a, and maybe a, a, um, a 12 to 17-hour type uh, athlete. Yeah. So with, with the carbs per hour thing, it's, the advice on that has been evolving for quite a long time now. It used to be thought that sort of 60-ish grams an hour was the limit of absorption of um, calories through the of carbohydrate through the gut of the average mm -hmm. of the average athlete and i think i'm right in saying that was based on early studies of looking at glucose up to uh, uptake rates in the gut whereby you know glucose is shuttled across the gut wall into the bloodstream by um i think it's s GS, uh, i can't remember the name of the transporter it's something like slgt1 or four that shuttles glucose from the gut into the bloodstream and those receptors get saturated at about a gram a minute so like 60 mm -hmm. you know, 60 grams an hour so and that was kind of i guess plausibly compatible with what people were observing athletes would eat per hour so this sort of like the 60 gram ceiling was accepted then in the early 2000s there was work done with um by a lot of it was Asker Yukondrup, who was, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know where he was working at the time, but Asker's worked with a lot of pro cycling teams, a lot of Ironman athletes and stuff. And he's a big, big, well-published and well-respected researcher in carbohydrate metabolism. And he looked at glucose-fructose mix. So when you mix glucose and fructose, you fructose is absorbed via a different transporter in the gut. So they sort of thought, well, this is like having a supermarket checkout queue. And when one queue is full and the glucose queue is full, we'll open a second one for fructose and more people, more, more molecules can get through at the same time. That, that was borne out, although the fructose appeared to be slower. So it's like 30 grams an hour. So that gives, add them together, you get 90 grams an hour. So in lab studies, that's been reasonably well if you can call it proven it's sort of been validated to a large extent that this is this is a thing 
And so lots of athletes, um, you know, look, looked at that. But alongside, in parallel with all of that, as there always is with elite athletes, like elite athletes don't often read these papers and things and they just kind of crack on and do what works and there's been a lot of anecdotal reports especially in pro cycling a lot in ultra marathon running as you've mentioned of people smashing way more than 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour and winning races and and doing great stuff and what some of those papers have, have proposed recently is this kind of 90 gram ceiling is not a concrete ceiling at all it's it's sort of a it 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 does represent, I think, based on personal experience and experience with athletes, a kind of, it's a high limit or a high amount, not a limit, but it's a high amount for a lot of people, but there are more than a few people who can do substantially more than that. So mm-hmm. basically what it comes down to, I think, is is you know, training the gut and also having some kind of either genetic or trained predisposition to being able to absorb more carbs. So the, the study that you mentioned, the, I think it was by a Spanish researcher um, looking at ultramarathon runners, they, they ate four gels an hour of 30 grams each during a, an event and they had their performance levels measured and they were actually looking at markers of muscle damage was their primary focus, I think. And they were looking at how much muscle damage occurred and it was less with the people that could eat and absorb more carbohydrate because presumably it's less therefore less stressful on the on the muscles the activity and that, but they but they basically proved that this is not just one or two freaks there's a p- good proportion of people who can potentially do this um, but it wasn't everyone so there were people in the study who who suffered at that level who were getting gi upset and so i think the, the feeling is currently that 90 grams was perceived as a hard limit it's no longer seen as a hard limit, but that doesn't mean that everyone's limits suddenly gone up to 120. You know, I think what we're showing is that like with a lot of things with elite athletes, elite athletes are better at doing lots of little things that contribute to their performance than the rest of us. And they also train really hard and eat lots of carbohydrate often. So those two things combined sort of open up the door and, and um, in, in our day-to-day practice, what this means is, it's like a conceptual barrier has been lifted. So we're definitely now and have been over the last few years, we've been working with pro cyclists and cycling teams and very interested in their numbers and have often routinely seen them taking more than 100 grams of carbs an hour, but also seeing their teammates sometimes taking 60 or 70 grams of carbs an hour and keeping up with them in long races. So there's there is a bit of inter-individual variance in that for sure. And so I think if people are interested in taking 120 grams an hour, one thing I can say for certain is you probably don't want to jump from 60 to 120 grams. You know, this is like a, a stepping stone type approach. And you may find that your ceiling is below that. It just depends on the, on the, on the sort of the, that, that's the, that's part of the, the preparation process. Yeah. And, you you have one other factor that people should consider, which is testing it in training, but also realizing there's the additional stress of what racing brings. Hundred percent travel, everything yeah. new, obviously race day, and that's going to slow down or lower your absorption a little bit. De- definitely, and that's where the the studies are interesting because and the practical experiences because we all know that when you watch the Tour de France and that sort of thing, where these guys are smashing a lot of carbohydrates day in day out. They do a lot of that. They'll do that when they're sat in the bunch, you know, sat up 
having a chat and that kind of thing where they're physically and mentally relaxed and, and able to do so. The the really interesting thing about that ultra marathon running study is is that if you'd have put your if you'd have, if you'd asked me to place a bet, would it be like proven in cyclists or runners that you could take that amount of carbs? I wouldn't have said runners because running is so hard to take in more stuff. But and and as you've alluded to, you know the the stress of racing, the psychological stress of racing, especially for those of us who are amateurs and race less frequently and kind of sometimes probably get more wound up than a lot of the pros do about races. That's a, that's mm-hmm. an additional factor that, and we, you know, you and I have talked about this before and we, with the purple patch reset um, event last year, we talked about it endlessly about this kind of the idea of the flexible plan. So, you know, you go into an event with a hydration plan, for example, that's, that's, based on science and practical experience and all the rest of it but with a with half a mind on the fact that on the day it could all change and i think that's the case with with nutrition you know you've got to go into a race with a with a bit of a plan but at the same time if you're i mean you you might remember a fantastic guy called um julian jenkinson who was a fellow brit sadly passed away quite a few years ago in the out riding his bike and um he was a friend of mine and someone i used to train with a bit on the bike and i used to pick his brains a lot because jules was the uk ironman record holder and i would say to him how do you know when you've had enough like fuel on the on the thing and he's he always used to say to me ah you i know i've had enough fuel when i'm like burping up a little bit of sick and it's a bit sugary (laughs) you know and then he'd start and then he'd say and then he'd stop eating for a bit and then he'd start eating again you know and that was kind of his but it, you know, the guy went eight, eleven for an Ironman twenty years ago, and um, I think that, that that sort of having an idea but testing it and adjusting it on the go is is so key. Bit of pragmatism and management, plan to plan, and then apply the plan, and it's the application. Yeah. Life is not a spreadsheet. So, so with that in mind, I've, it's a huge one for me. I've I've got a couple more questions I want to talk about. Uh, this next question, and then I want to talk a couple of questions around environment, and then I think that we're going to be running out of time. So the bottle collision, this is a huge important one. I had several athletes ask me this, so I have to bring it to you. So I will read this from Andy, what, from uh, Alex that was the uh, question. What are Andy's thoughts on combining all of your calories, electrolytes, and your hydration, so there's your three levers, into a single bottle? Go for it. Well, in some ways, it's obviously, as some athletes would say, it is like the holy grail, isn't it? It's just, I'm going to mix this little bottle up and this has got everything in it. It's this, it's the life is a spreadsheet thing. It's got every nutrient in it that I need to see me through this 10-hour day, you know, and off we go. And there's an appealing simplicity in it. Very occasionally, it can work as well because sometimes you get, you know, your, your magic mixture is like spot on. But the reason it often doesn't work is because, well, of all those things we've just talked about, the plan has to change. And with one bottle with everything in it, the plan can't change. Because if you're thirsty and you're exceptionally thirsty that day and you drink one and a half times as much, you're getting one and a half times as many electrolytes and you're getting one and a half times as many calories, whether your gut's ready for it or not. And I saw this this breakdown, not in a actually in a sport that we've talked about before but the devices to westminster canoe race a couple of guys um two ex-world champions ben brown 
who actually is my, happens to be my cousin, and Ivan Lawler, who's a very famous British paddler who won many Olympic, went to many Olympic Games, loads of world championships. They went for the record in the DW, and they decided that to save time, it's a 125 mile canoe race. They decided to save time. They would have all of their stuff in one bottle, you know, and just get it topped up all the time. It was like sludge, and like seven or eight hours in, they were they were they were out because there was so much diarrhea in the boat they couldn't carry on. So that sort of that tells you what you need to know about my thoughts on that approach. Well, uh, in in gaining simplicity, you are completely removing any options that you have. And interestingly, you don't. I'm going to ask a second question from Alex. But Andy, you don't have to supply the answer to this because I know that Alex and Alex, I know that you'll be listening to this. Uh, he is a lover of the one bottle uh, solution. And here was his honest follow-up question. How can you avoid pooping in your pants on the run? I tend to have that happen to be a lot. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> Alex, go back to the top and just listen to what we just spoke about there. Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, I'm, I'm, I've become less prag- uh, less um, sort of dogmatic over the last few years with saying to people, because I have heard stories of people who've like done this approach and it's really worked for them. And if they do, there is that. I am a big believer in, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Don't fix if it, it, yeah. If it, if it works, if you can get it to work. I think though, if, if you think, if you're starting from a clean sheet, the ability for me to have, and the reason that we call them those three levers, you know, the carbs, the fluids, the salts, keep them a little bit separate so that you can pull them a bit independently. To be fair, the sort of electrolytes and fluids bit tend to move together. So you can sort of, you often find you're pulling those two levers at a similar rate, but having the flexibility and then teaching yourself to, um, it's kind of like teaching yourself, I guess, if you're a pilot to fly by, by, feel and by looking at the horizon and listening to the plane and all that sort of stuff rather than flying purely by your instruments you know it's like it's it's a feel factor thing and you you develop it by practicing it and by you only practice it by having them all separate and playing with the levers you know it's um if if you don't people were were less and i don't accuse everyone of this but people were less sort of tied up in the idea of like theorizing about getting it right before they go out and try it they'd probably get a lot further with with trial and error you know i certainly and i would i would tie myself with that brush i spent a lot of time before big races sometimes agonizing over the 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 detail instead of getting out on a few long rides and long runs and just like giving it a go and seeing what worked seeing what worked etc okay so two two final categories we want to go through these pretty quickly if we can but a question from coletta here she said in the heat, I consistently end up at the end of the race in the med tent with severe cramping. I think I'm diligent about pre and during hydration, and I'm wondering whether there are any other factors I'm not considering. That that was me, you know, before getting the electrolyte balance right. So I was taking on a lot of fluids and not a lot of sodium. So my N of 1 sort of experiment would lead me to suggest that it's electrolytes that need looking at there. Uh, it'd be interesting when when someone says they're diligent about their hydration the red flag that sometimes is is like i drink a lot is what they're saying and maybe it could be that you need a bit more electrolytes especially with the cramping and reducing or holding you might might be taking enough fluid but not enough electrolytes with it or it might be less fluid and more electrolytes but that would be the first place we'd, we'd go looking 
Um, but if if we if we want to follow that one up, you know, on an individual basis as well, we we would definitely be happy to have a further conversation. To yeah, it sounds, sounds like she 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 would benefit from a further conversation, so we can we can put Coletta in touch with uh, with your team on that. And in fact, there's there's another follow up question. We we have gone through this in the prior podcast, so I so I won't ask you to answer this, but it is related. Amy had asked, "How do I know whether I'm a light sweater or or moderate sweater?" I mean, this is the importance of the sweat testing, and yeah. you have the free tool online at Precision yeah. Hydration. And um, what we what we can do, Matt, is link in the show notes to like a spreadsheet to measure your sweat rate because it's really easy to do. And then we could give give advice based on that as well. Perfect. So, so we'll we'll yeah. do that, and uh, we'll pop that in the show notes for you guys. And then, of course, uh, you know, we as as we do start to open up the San Francisco Center, we will be uh, running full lab based sweat testing, and there are several labs uh, all over. The, uh, the country all over the world, I should add, uh, that then you can get some information and, uh, and consult with either us at Purple Patch or, or Andy's team around uh, the results that you get there. So we will also put details of that in the show notes of well, as well. Before I, before I let you go, Andy, I, I, I do want to ask one thing at the end that I think is really important because things go wrong in racing, challenges happen. In fact, there hasn't been a great performance in which the victor or the great performer hasn't overcome adversity. There's, there's no such thing as a perfect race. At least I haven't seen one. Yeah. And so it's a great question from Liz here that she said, what do you do if you find yourself in a hole when it comes to the run? That sort of old crap moment, not an Alex old crap moment, but an old crap moment where you've got just massive systemic challenge and you're cramping. What can you do? I reckon the first thing that I would say delving back into personal experience on that is like, first of all, just as hard as it is, try not to get too immediately despondent that it's all over. Because like you say, you wind yourself up and you mentally rehearse and you want the perfect race and you kind of envision the perfect race every time. And then, and then it doesn't happen. And that can be really tough. And then you can, you can go very quickly from feeling like, you're doing everything you want to do to a horrible hole of despair. And if you let that happen, or if that, if you feel that happening, you've got to take a step back. And I wish I'd have been able to do this a few times when I was racing and like refocus very quickly, put it in a box and say, okay, what am I going to do to mitigate whatever's going on here? And I reckon the first thing in most circumstances to do is, is like pause, slow down and like evaluate. And this is where if it's new, if it's, if there is a, and often it is in in long races. The things that that are sort of within your control that can go wrong tend to be errors of pacing, errors of hydration and nutrition. Outside of that, you've got you could maybe class like technical errors on the bike if you haven't looked after it and those kind of things. But they're the main ones. And I and I would say we talk to our athletes that we work with a lot about a mental ledger, which is these numbers that you should know your carbs per hour your fluids per hour your salts per hour you need to be keeping a mental ledger throughout the race of what you've taken in the last 60 to 90 minutes because when things start to go wrong you then have a bit of an idea where to go looking because if your plan suggested 60 grams of carbs an hour but you've only been taking 25 then there's a very good chance that what you're experiencing if your symptoms tie in with it is a is a dip in blood sugar and a dip in sort of you know energy levels so the recovery then is slowing down 
absorbing as much carbohydrate as you can as quickly as you can to try to to rescue it and bring it back and in that instance you can often bring it back quite quite fundamentally oftentimes though it's not that simple it's not quite as obvious but but what you need to do is is slow down calm down triage the situation and then start pulling the levers or just adapting the pacing or whatever it is with with whilst retaining a level of confidence that things can come back because especially in things like ultra running and ironman there are as you said there are some phenomenal stories of people coming back from death's door and going on to do really really well and the the, the perfect race doesn't mean shouldn't get in the way of a good race you know yeah and i think that's that's yeah if i could go back and tell my old self all of those things i'd i'd have benefited well for sure and that's i mean i think that i'm going to just repeat that but you know don't let a perfect race get in the way of a good race and um as i sort of thought of there one of the things that we always talk about is when you start a race the mission is always the same which is to get from the start line to the finish line as fast as you possibly can and even when things are turning to custard sometimes it's your stomach to that the mission hasn't changed and so you you have to stay focused on that mission and uh, and it's very very easy to let the brain pull you down into that direction so we 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 have as uh, as you might imagine a whole host of other questions i'm sorry for you guys that i didn't get to your questions um i will be following up with andy i might be able to get a few more areas for the purple patch athletes to answer some of the personal questions and we'll post those to you guys and um and over the course of the coming month or two i'm sure that i can persuade andy to uh, to a come back onto the show but also come to the purple patch team for the performance academy folks and the purple patch athletes and maybe do a uh, a live session with the group uh, nothing like inviting and asking in front of several thousand listeners so that he doesn't <laughs> have an option to say no but uh, a- andy it's um it's i think we're all looking forward to uh, to racing again I, I really appreciate you taking time as ever and it's wonderful as um as we mentioned we've got some things in the show notes we also have uh, I think some uh, special special goodies for people in the show notes around uh, the options at precisionhydration.com and, um, and to go from there. So I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show as ever. No, lovely to chat, Matt, and I can't wait to come out and see all you Purple Patch people when they we let will. us get back on aeroplanes. We will uh, we'll lay down the red carpet for you, Captain. Stay safe over there. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Guys, thanks so much for joining and thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the new format. You can never miss an episode by simply subscribing. Head to the Purple Patch channel of YouTube and you will find it there and you could subscribe. Of course, I'd like to ask you if you will subscribe. Also, share it with your friends and it's really helpful if you leave a nice positive review in the comments. Now, any questions that you have, let me know. Feel free to add a comment and I will try my best to respond and support you on your performance journey. And in fact, as we commence this video podcast experience, if you have any feedback at all, as mentioned earlier in the show, we would love your help in helping us to improve. Simply email us at info at purplepatchfitness.com or leave it in the comments of the show at the Purple Patch page and we will get you dialed in. We'd love constructive feedback. We are in a growth mindset, as we like to call it. And so feel free to share with your friends. But as I said, let's build this together. 
Let's make it something special. It's really fun. We're really trying hard to make it a special experience and we want to welcome you into the Purple Patch community. With that, I hope you have a great week. Stay healthy, have fun, keep smiling, doing whatever you do. Take care.